Hello and welcome to the British Chambers podcast channel. We're delighted to bring you a second season of in-depth discussions and conversations with our members and high-profile speakers, ranging from topics like trade, fintech, arts, sports, and more within Singapore, ASEAN, and the UK. Thank you for your support, and we hope you enjoy today's podcast. With 10 categories, 10 winners, and one big night of celebrating the best of business excellence, entries are now open for the British Chamber's 22nd Annual Business Awards. As Singapore's longest-running awards by an international chamber, categories range from Employer of the Year, Diversity and Inclusion Champion of the Year, Sustainability Champion of the Year, through to UK Exporter of the Year, and more. For all the details and how to submit your entries, visit www.britcham.org.sg. Hi everyone, my name is Michael Yao. I'm the Regional Managing Director of Coventry University Singapore Hub. We are Coventry University's first overseas hub set up in March 2019. Our role is to promote the university group's research, globalization, enterprise and innovation work throughout the region by developing closer relationships with embassies, government bodies, research institutes, universities and private sectors entities. I'm also a member of the British Chamber Leadership, Talent and Professional Development Committee. Our committee brings together high-profile leaders from both the commercial and academia to share their thoughts and experience. In today's podcast, I've invited my colleague from Coventry University, Professor Mike Hardy, to share more about his research on global leadership and why one size does not fit all, his insights on the challenges global leaders face, the importance of understanding the intercultural differences, and importantly, his tips to help global leaders excel in these uncertain times. Professor Mike Hardy is the Chair of Intercultural Relations and founding Director of the Centre for Trust, Peace and Social Relations at Coventry University. Twice honoured in the UK, OBE in 2001 for his peace-building work in Middle East and appointed a CMG, Companion of Honour of St. Michael and St. George in 2010 for his work internationally in intercultural dialogue. In 2002, he was honoured by the Palestinian Welfare Association for work with NGOs, in Gaza and West Bank, and more recently became the first non-Indonesian awarded a doctorate by Arasi Lima by Muhammadiyah Indonesia. Prof. Mai is broad chair of the International Leadership Association, a visiting scholar at Yale University's International Leadership Centre and a trustee of the UK Faith and Belief Forum. Prof. Mai completed a major review of literature on coercive societies for the British Academy in 2019. His prize-winning co-edited volume, Muslim Identity in a Turbulent Age, Islamic Extremism and Western Islamophobia, was published in 2017. His latest works, based on extended interviews with global influencers, leaders in times of disconnection, focus on the evolution of transformative leadership and its importance for peaceful relations and more purposeful organization in our turbulent world. In his early career, Prof. Mike Hardy was trained as an economist, he was Head of Economics and Public Policy at Leeds Metropolitan and Chair in the International Business at the University of Central Leicester before working in the Foreign and Commonwealth Office and British Council to working in social relations. He was a Fulbright Scholar in the USA. Prof. Mike worked in the Eastern Europe on behalf of the Foreign and Commercial Office and European Commission at the time of transition there into the EU. He spent three years working in Cairo, and the broader Middle East with the British Council on Private Sector Development and four years in Indonesia. 
He returned to the academic life in 2011 as Professor of Intercultural Relations at Coventry University. Hi, Mike. Morning in the UK. Welcome and thanks for joining me today. I'm honoured to have you today amid your tight schedule. In, in our last conversation, you mentioned that you're focusing on the research and global leadership. As sport chair of the International Leadership Association, you also want to build a strong group of global leaders that can impact our changing society. I'm sure our listeners are looking forward to learning from you today, including me. In your research, you talk about the need of global leadership to make sense of a complex and fast-moving world. Can you share with us, what do you see as challenges of global leaders in the new context, and what is global leadership? What an introduction. Thank you very much. You always overstate things. But, um, you know, this is a really important time for leadership, which is why you and I started this conversation some time ago and why we wanted to come together this morning. It's an important time because the world is facing a particular era of turbulence and uncertainty. Now, we don't need to list all the issues that are challenging us. But better leadership um, brings the ability and more opportunity for humans to flourish and for societies to be successful. And so very interestingly, I think throughout my career, I've recognized how, how we understand many of these issues and how we can better frame those by looking at the way in which we organize ourselves and move forward. And that always involves leaderships. It involves leaders and it involves leadership. So we can come later to talk about the particular challenges in this 21st year of the 21st century, you know, which is a, a theme I've been really uh, exercised about. But I do want to start by, by making sure we're very clear of the difference between global leaders and global leadership. This is really important. Just to frame our definitions, don't we have to, to, to be obsessed by definitions, but you know, we need to ask the question, are we interested in leaders who draw on a global mindset to uh, address particular problems? Is that what we mean by global leaderships, taking a global awareness and applying it to a position? Or are we interested in taking a position which will have an impact globally? These are very different and they require a relationship between local and global. And there are lots of good examples of that. But what do I mean by global leadership? I mean that we need a, a global mindset to address challenges that are common to us all and that are confronting us all. And the main challenges, I think, are, are twofold. And the role of leaders, I see very simply in two big areas. The first, leaders must help us and leadership as a process must help us make sense of the context in which we're in. And secondly, Having made sense and helped clarify, leaders and leadership must help make a positive change. And those two things are my judgment of how effective leadership is. Do they help us understand what's going on? And do they help us make a positive change and bring benefit to their communities and organizations? It's very interesting you talk about leadership in the global world. It's a bit different from being a global leader. Yeah. Right. I think we've experienced working in so many different countries. In, in your topic today, we, we mentioned why one size does not fit all. Right. It's interesting because I think this is a common topic that people like to understand. Let's talk about leadership, we understand what leadership, but I think this context is very different. So can you share us more insights? What do you mean by one size does not fit all? 
So I've really been challenging in, in the most recent work that I'm doing, the last three or four years, this notion that there's, there is one size, one answer, one response, one textbook that you can open up and say, this is the way to lead. These are the best experiences. Because all my work in interculturalism says that, you know, leadership is so inextricably linked to culture, to behaviors, to norms, to values, to the way in which you and I relate as friends and as professional colleagues. So I've been very fortunate, as you know, and as I've worked in, in, in the global north, in the, in the United Kingdom and the United States, as well as living in Brussels for a bit. I've also been very fortunate to have traveled widely. My grandson and I were, were joking with a map the other day, and I think about 190 countries I've visited, which, which is remarkable. I didn't plan to do that. But one thing that I drew from it, and many of our listeners will have traveled widely as well, is that you become a different fish in a different golf, goldfish bowl, if you use that metaphor. And to be really effective, you must absorb and reflect the context in which you're operating. But that's not to say there aren't some very general points, some transferable, universal things that matter. When I, um, I've observed some amazing leaders, let, let me tell you, in, uh, in the end of the 1990s, I was stationed in East Jerusalem, actually in Ramallah, not far from East Jerusalem, in the West Bank, the Palestinian territories. And I was there working on projects for the UK on trying to, to improve the effect effectiveness of the leadership of the Palestinian National Administration. And I watched there the leadership, very different from anything I'd experienced. What I saw there were, were a blend of very autocratic top-down leaders mixed with huge charisma and huge personality and commission, mixed also, thirdly, with a lot of passion. So the leaders of the Palestinian Authority, and We'll all know the difficult context in which they're in. And we didn't get into the politics as such. But observing their leadership style was, was really, really educational. I saw charisma mixed with passion, mixed with very firm, top-down leadership. And I saw the most effective use of that style of leadership, which is very, very bullish and, and, and confident, was the leaders within that group who also listened. And who also, you know, when they're out there in front with their flag carrying and their passions, still took time to just pause to make sure that their followers were on site and that their followers were keeping up. And the dysfunction of leaders in that sort of context is often the case that they, they run too far ahead of the pack. They lead from the front without taking sensitive assessments of how their followers are managing. So in, in the Palestinian context, you know, leadership that was driven by the values and the passions and what was politically right had at the same time to reflect that many of their followers, many of the people for whom they were leading, had families, had communities, had challenges of healthcare, had challenges of schools, and just were making, making uh, lives for themselves. So unless you blended those two, the leadership that you imposed was less effective. Looking back at home, you know, I, I saw, you know, 
you become very schizophrenic, don't you? So at the same time that you're living and experiencing that, you're watching at home a place where where top-down leadership just doesn't work, where, where people expect to participate, they expect to be consulted, they expect you to communicate more effectively. And if you fail to communicate and to, to, to encourage participation, we see more dysfunction. But if all that consultation and participation is at the expense of decisiveness, we see also problem. So uh, this chemistry of, of being clear but being sensitive is quite universal, I think. Yeah. My experience. It's interesting one because recently I read something about assertive leadership in, in the Chinese world and democratic leadership in the, in the Western world. So there was argument between what is the right leadership style, what is the best way. Maybe in your view, global leaders or leaders working in the global context, especially in today's world, whereby due to the COVID situation, leaders are managing people from different parts of the world. So what are the skills and competency do you see that's missing in some of these leaders that we have right now, globally? So I jump, um, and it's a very good observation. Your experience in China, I'm sure, fascinating. And I've, I've visited many times, but not spent long periods of time there. But, you know, I've moved my thinking from the results or the behaviours of leaders to the context and to the issues. And I think in our contemporary world, there are three uh, important things going on that I think influence us all, wherever we are, whichever culture we're in. The first is that there's no doubt at all, in my view, that as a race, humans are less secure now than ever before. We're better informed because of uh, mass media, because of the internet, social media, but at the same time, we're pervasively misinformed by the bad use of, of the same media. So that's the first thing. We're less secure, better informed, but the information is managed. Secondly, we operate with declining levels of trust. In all our history, Michael, trust between individuals has been the lifeblood, the glue that maintains social cohesion, social coherence. So I might not like you, I might not agree with you, but actually you're okay, you're not intended to harm me, and I trust that that will continue. That's as a result of the first of my issues, it's about information and misinformation, I think we have declining levels of trust, both between you and I as individuals, unfortunately, and between you and I and institutions. And thirdly, we have a global context which is more unequal than ever before, and less fair, I have to say, if you look around. So whether you're a government or a, or a corporation or an NGO, a school, a household, a community, you have to live with those contexts. Less secure, misinformed by, by the abuse of large-scale data sets and information, a context that operates with declining levels of trust and a global context which is more unequal and less fair. So what, what do we do in those, wherever we are, whichever culture we come from, whether we're paternalist, charismatic, democratic, we need to cope with those. And I think that's why the, the work currently going on, which we call adaptive leadership, has become so powerful. The best form of leadership is not to look at values and culture first, but be sensitive to those, but to look at the parameters of the problem first. So when you get up in the morning, you'll know that you, you cannot apply the lessons you learned yesterday 
to today. You have to look at today and build your strategy for now because the, the context will have changed so much. So this is adaptive leadership is participative. You, you involve as many people as you can because you want as many options as you can. But two, two criteria judge what, what you choose. And I think these are very important tips. The first is always think of uh, contexts in which there are winners everywhere. But winning doesn't take place at the expense of losers. So win-win is, a, is an essential parameter, I think, that we need to target. And the second, when we do have loss, we have to manage it. So most of the conflicts in the world are because people drive ahead chasing their ambitions and objectives without managing the downsides, the losses that happen inevitably. So um, it's a long-winded answer, Michael, but it's essentially, <laughs> you know, the, the excitement I have about my current work is, is trying to fathom how we deal with such turbulent and uncertain times. I think Mark is very true. I think if you, you look at current context about what's happening in the world, there's a lot of mistrust. At the same time, it's overflow of information. People do not know what to trust anymore. Because as a leader, in, especially in Asia, we, although we try to control what our information that we receive every single day, but the media is so wide. Everything is spreading every single day. So even at the way different government leaders handle the COVID-19 situation in this current situation, it's also very different. But I mean, you have been in Asia for many years, you have lived in Indonesia for four years. Maybe you can share a bit more. Working in such an environment, what, what should leaders look up for, especially in Asian context? So I think um, when I arrived in Indonesia, I, I found it a wonderful uh, culture, a wonderful environment. I, I warmed to it very much. And it's why I go back every year, even having left it over, over a decade ago. And it gets in your blood. It was similar in Cairo. Somebody said to me once, you know, if you dip your foot in the river Nile, it, you'll always go back. Um, um, we always have. Now, what, what were the endearing characteristics that can be drawn from those contexts and applied in, in a leadership discussion? I think the culture, which I'd never experienced before. I was a decision maker. I was a leader. And I found a culture of people who found it very difficult to disagree with me and to disappoint me. Those two things I found really uncomfortable. So these will be familiar to you. So this was a culture of, of very capable, committed people, very loyal, but they didn't want to disagree with me and they didn't want to disappoint me. And that drove their behavior and their relationship to me as a leader. And I had to relearn. I had to cope with those real big changes. So. For example, I would ask a stranger in the street for directions. How do I get to the post office, as an example? And I have to tell you, if they knew they'd tell me, and they'd probably take me there. That was this incredible warmth of hospitality. If they didn't know, they'd probably lie and say that they did know, and it was over there, because they didn't want to disappoint me and suggest that they didn't know. I found that hugely interesting and very, very uh, disconcerting as a leader. So you have to adapt around that. And so you, there's a very clear example that I've, that happened over and over again in my office. I had about 120 staff who wouldn't tell you if they didn't know something. They wouldn't tell you if they hadn't achieved a, a, an output that you wanted by Thursday. Have you finished it? They would never say no. 
they would always say not yet. Right. So as a leader, you have to adjust. You can either be really angry and frustrated. So a very simple I change. I said, if you knew where the post office is, how could you point me to it? So you offer a that's a simple adaptive style that says, you know, if you know, and if they don't know, they, they say, well, actually, I don't know where it is. So you've removed immediately the cultural difference or the cross-cultural difference. It's only a silly example, but I did use it a lot. And, you know, if we were to do this, how would you help me do it? it was better than this is what we have to do, which didn't respond. This, this is a very good advice, Mike, for people who, who come to this region recently, even in I for myself. Yeah. I remember when I was working in China, the style that I adopt is very authoritative. When I came back to Singapore, I have to change it to a collaborative and a, a corporate style of engaging the staff here. Yeah. And again, the different leadership style works very differently in all the countries you go to. I mean, one observation I made when I was in China, when I ask any question or ask questions in the open group, nobody will raise any question. Everybody will keep quiet writing their notes. So yeah. you have to start pointing to the person and ask a very direct question. That mm -hmm. might not work in the Western world because you become too direct, you're too authoritative, people want to have a more freedom of speech. I think that's the reason why it's very interesting based on your observation and my observation working in this region. From your observation in the Western world, the Eastern world, the Middle East, in even in Indonesia, you travel a lot, a lot, a lot. What example, examples of intercultural difference that you think will impact end leaders from the opposite posting? From, from your experience, what will impact their leaders here if they are not familiar with intercultural differences? I think um, openness is really, really critical. And I, I think, but let me, let me look. One of, one of the big differences that, that I've observed in practice of leadership is how much reference different cultures place on their history. This is quite interesting. So, mm -hmm. and you can self-interrogate how, when you, if you are a leader or you're a chair of a board or you're the owner of a shop, when you approach things, do you look back and say how it's done, how I've observed it or experienced, and therefore I will do it in this way? And how often do you engage in conversation with different cultures? When I first arrived in Egypt, for example, the temptation was always to say, well, back in the UK, this is how we do it. When I was in New York, this is what I did, assuming that everybody would say, oh, well, that must be the best way then. By you looking at the cultural differences and trying to hire, make hierarchies of them, that this is best and this is worst, it's flawed and it's vacant. So always better to say, to recognize up front that uh, this is only from my experience. There's no science here, but I have to say it's, it's based upon you know, my experience in different places that works seem to work quite well. That let's share different ways of looking at this. And if as a leader, you, you're very clear how much you want to learn personally from the different contexts, quite often you can be quite influential because you can win what, what I said earlier about the importance of trust. Trust isn't something that comes with seniority or with past experience. Trust you earn on a moment-by-moment on a -moment basis. You have to build trust by through sharing, through asking the right questions, through showing that people are important and all the things that we know from management literature are difficult to do sometimes. But trust is essential. And if, if at the end of the day, the consequence of a strong trust-based relationship is that people will let go and allow you to lead 
or that you will let go and allow people to follow in the way that they're most comfortable, that's only possible if you have a contract of trust. You can't, you can't buy that sort of behavior. You can't enforce it. You can encourage it and enable it, I think. And that, that's really what I experienced in, uh, it started off, I think, in the Middle East is very different. And in Cairo, the interesting thing there was that there was a very strong post-colonial influence. So white men, particularly, who came from London and sat down as bosses, brought with them a huge history of baggage and, and a long period of, uh, of, of recollections in a very articulate, very well-read community. Cairo, you know, is very sophisticated with its literature and its wonderful traditions. So you had to decolonize yourself before you could become more open. And some of these things are very difficult to achieve, I think. Yeah, I think similar experience I had, I mean, you're talking about even in Singapore or even in Asian countries, even in my own experience, sometimes uh, somebody from the foreign country, from UK, when they go to a restaurant, they tend to be treated better because the impression is the Western guy is the leader. Chinese guy might not be the leader. So I think that's the kind of impression people tend to have. So as a leader, what would be your best advice given to a leader who, who go to a new country? For example, a UK guy who's going to China or even going to Indonesia right now. You mentioned something that's very relevant. Take away that baggage you, you came from and to have the better understanding of the country itself. Is, is there more advice you can give to somebody who's yeah. traveling to the future? Well, I hope so. Um, and you know, you and I talked about the, the current research I was doing. But, uh, I've been very fortunate in that what I've done is assembled a group of, of global leaders from the corporate sector, from the political sector, prime ministers, presidents. I've been very fortunate, leaders in the United Nations. And what I've done is asked exactly that question. And what's come out of, I've done now 28 interviews, and I've got another sort of 12 to do before I publish. And what's come out is a very clear set of universal things that that really better leaders, more trusted leaders are uh, need to think about. The first is, don't assume you know the right questions to ask. So these are these are innovative and new type styles of approaching the sort of challenge of a leader. Leader normally sets in at the beginning of the day a set of questions they need to resolve in order to make a decision in order to fulfill a particular objectives. Never expect that you have the right questions. So be very challenged. You know, it's often assumed that leaders and stakeholders know the right questions to ask. But in change contexts, this isn't always the case. Look at the current health pandemic that we're suffering now. Politicians have been urged to ask experts what to do, to follow the expertise, to follow the medical science. That requires the politician to know what questions to ask because then the experts will answer. If you ask the wrong questions, the experts will give you their expert answer to the wrong question. So here, don't ask the questions. Think about which question to ask. That's the first tip. Secondly, leadership must be able to work with complexity. It mustn't assume a linear tra trajectory for, for decision-making as we used to in management science. We need to work creatively not be caught in, in what this sort of linear and reductionist notions that need to adapt to. So when things are complex, 
having success in one area can actually cause problems in another. This is what the scientists call a wicked problem, isn't it? You solve one thing by creating another. So if you take all the homeless off the streets of Singapore and put them in hostels, you solve the problem of homelessness in, in terms of visual and, and the physical presence of people. But unless you do something else, you create a budget crisis, an accommodation crisis, and actually you don't deal with probably some of the source reasons as to why they were homeless in the first place. So solving the problem is in a very linear way, people on the street take them off the street, may actually not be addressing complexity. Third thing, I mentioned a lot um, today about trust. Leaders must cultivate trust. This is like being a farmer, you know, like sowing a seed that leads to trust. And that comes around, I think, when leaders are seen to be res respectful and reflective of their followers and are ultimately quite open about making mistakes. Some of my, are very, very difficult in my early career to ever own up to being wrong and to making a mistake. But the most successful leadership I've been involved with, my centre at Coventry is a classic example. At the end of my career, I was able to apply sorts of different, was to stay, start on day one recognising that I was going to make lots of mistakes and that people were going to have the courage to, to tell me I was, I was wrong and the courage to help me uh, reverse the mistake or, or change it. I think the fourth is about agility and adaptability. And I've, I've made the point already because you don't know the right questions, because things are complex, because you want to build more trust. I think that reflects in the how agile you are as a leader and, you know, how predictable you are is it used to be, you know, in the management literature, you know, be a predictable leader. This will be, you know, you'll be honest, you'll, you'll build trust. But actually, if everybody knows what Mike's going to do, how can he affect the sort of positive change in new and innovative ways of dealing with problems? So I have no clue what Mike's going to do is a much healthier. It sound, doesn't sound it, but let's work with him to define what's needed in the current, current context. So those are my first four. I don't want to speak for forever in a day but sort of drift these are very powerful findings and when you look at what people perceive to be clever and impactful leadership those are the sorts of things that come from my research i'm very interested in your research because you did mention you have talked to many global leaders presidents prime ministers very senior academics about leadership i believe even in our committee we have been always constantly discussing what is the best leadership style suitable for our, our region? I mean, I'm talking about Asian context right now. What, what advice would you give? I mean, what type of leadership style do you think will be the best suited for this region? I mean, it's a tough question, but any idea, some so advice? I, so from the discussions I've had, it's, it's often easy for us to say, look, um, the current style has to reflect the personality and character of the leader. And so you develop a leadership around a leader. And all, all the sense of the research that I've looked at and the current literature on, on sort of adaptive leadership says, let's try and take the leader out of leadership. So just dwell on that for a bit. Don't, let's not drive 
leadership by the leader. Let's look at what leadership, this combination of leaders, followers, stakeholders, experts, and so forth, needs to put together. So I think that the, the first big lesson for me is not to build the leadership around the leader. So when you're in a different context, you dilute the impact of that context the more you have participation by those within the context. So um, a new chief executive officer who arrives in Singapore or in Hong Kong or in London from somewhere else and expects to open his briefcase or her briefcase and out pops the strategy for the week, you know, I don't think would be a successful leader. I think the first skill that a leader needs is one of listening and most important of all, hearing. Now, we can all say that we listen, but do we actually absorb what we hear? And I certainly have observed some of the most successful. I'll give you a good example. David Miliband was a British politician that many will know, was foreign secretary when I was working in the field. And I met him in, in South Asia when he'd visiting Pakistan. And he was amazing. He's a very bright guy, of course, and I like him very much. But I met him in Peshawar in Northwest Territory in Pakistan. And I was dressed rather like I am this morning with a shirt and, and shorts and so forth because it was very, very hot weather. He arrived in a three-piece suit with a tie. <laughs> and I thought, here's a leader that hasn't actually, and I'm, I'd say to him if he were here, of course, that hasn't actually necessarily reflected on whether he was going to absorb the context or reflect the context. But, you know, how he behaved removed any issue of the difference in terms of his style of presence and his suitedness. And he was the he was an archetypal foreign secretary on a mission, of course, and he looked the part, but his listening and his engagement with ordinary people, and he would stop to talk to people least likely to have been put forward by the community to talk to. And then when he left politics, I've seen him since, he now runs, of course, International Rescue Corporation, a major NGO that's doing incredible things for humanitarian relief and for security globally. And he's almost invisible as a leader. You clearly feel his impact. And I'm not uh, simply a proponent of David Miliband. This isn't a, a, you know, an advert or a favour. But I tell you, he's almost unlike a foreign secretary who is a very visible presence and a powerful part of national government. His leadership of the International Rescue Corporation with New York, he's almost invisible. And it's what is achieved by his team that defines his leadership, not who he is as an individual. It's a very good example, I think, of, of what I've been talking about. Hugely wow. inspirational. I think this, this is something I learned today. Being the invisible leader, that's something different. Correct. Leader doesn't mean you to be up front, lead at a rostrum, making a speech, but can be a leader that works with the team and yeah. making separate. So yeah, that's really important advice. Look at your stakeholders and ask them what what do they feel that a successful leader would be? And it's more often than not, you go back to the first two points we started with. Does my leader help make sense of what's going on? And just how do you do that? How do you make sense? You don't assume you know things. You ask lots of questions, as I said. So making sense of 
the current context is, is really important. And secondly, does my leader help make a difference, make a positive change? And most of the, in whatever cultural settings, the invisible leader is a very powerful leader because they're busy behind the scenes, making sure they understand the situation and working behind the scenes, making that their operating staff are empowered and enabled to, to, to move forward or enabled to learn by making mistakes and then to, to, to be accountable. And my, I have to say the most, and I had to learn on the, on the job. I never went to business school to learn how to be a leader, I think. But um, in my later parts of my career, I was, I was a leader. And now I observe from the International Leadership Association, which I joined for more inspiration and ended up becoming the chair of the board. Um, probably because I was very, very noisy and, 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 and spoke too much. But what I observe is, is that the most effective leaders are those who you need to search out and find because they're not in front of you. They're not right up front, very visible. They're people who are working effectively at empowering and enabling their teams to be successful. And that applies in every context, every cultural context I've seen. So, um, and that requires a leader who is able to build confidence in others. There's a great word that I used a lot and I hear a lot, and that's accountability. This is a word that says, give you enormous freedom as a, an operating employee or as a colleague, but I'm going to hold you accountable to mission, to objectives, to targets, to goals, whatever it is, uh, and to, to, to law, you know, to, so that you're, in, you're working with integrity. I think accountability is the way, the tool that I most value in my toolkit as a leader. Because it says, look, I don't mind how you do it. I don't mind what you do, as long as you're, you work with integrity and, and, and within the law and so forth and within our practice and our values. But I want to maximize the freedom that you have to perform. But I want to hold you accountable very rigorously and very robustly. Um, so there's a, it's a contract, if you like, within the development of effective leadership between the leaders and the stakeholders and the other followers, a contract that is driven by great freedom on the one side, but very tight accountability on the other. But it's a culture that requires the ability for us to learn by making mistakes, because if you give someone freedom, it's not always going to work out, you know, and there's going to be times when you have to retrieve and you have to turn around. And But I think the benefits far outweigh the risks of straying or of distraction by doing that. Well, Mike, I think this is really very interesting. And for me, I learned a lot today, not just for listening, but I learned to hear, you have to trust, you have to be enforced accountability with the people that work with. But I think important is also to understand the culture of where we are, correct? Not taking away, not taking with you what you learned in your previous life to now, but on the spot as a leader, you should continuously be learning. And I, I read the word, be an invisible leader. I think that's something that a lot of leaders, even like myself, tend to forget. We should know what you want standing up front, we should run standing behind, guiding our team, making them work along, making them achieve the goals. I think that's a very important takeaway for myself. So, yeah. Mike, one, one final question. 
it, I believe everyone, including myself, would like to hear. Can, can you give us maybe a couple of tips, correct, of how global leaders can excel in this uncertain, uncertain time? I think right now, everybody are facing difficulty with COVID-19, with restrictions, with travel, right? What tips will you give to a global leader right now? I think it's, the first is to be humble and humility. And this is it's hugely different. And some cultures find this really, really hard, but it's really, really important. I think humility says that nobody knows the answers to the current context. We all are explorers. You know, you imagine the old explorers who'd arrive on their boats in, down as the Zambezi in the middle of the jungle in Africa and hadn't any understanding of what they were going to find, this excitement of climbing mountains because they're there. I think that's what we have to encourage. So the first is humility, is to say, I don't know the answer. I have quite a lot of experience of dealing with different situations, but I don't know this one and I don't know the answer. So what do you do as a humble leader is you search out people who do know the answer or who are more likely to have the answer. That's that's what humility means. It means I'm going to trust, put my success on the backs of others who know better than I. So that's that's the first, I think. The second is make sure you make clear in your head the relationship between local and global. Don't assume that they're inseparable and different and that you cannot take experience from one place and apply it to another. You can't automatically, but the relationship between global and local is really important. So when you see practice somewhere else, don't write it off as saying that's only possible over there. It's not possible here. Be really flexible about the relationship between um, different cultures and different localities. And I think breeding that across is 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 really quite critical. And the final thing is continuous learning, is investing continuous learning. So um, I at the start of every new project, I don't look at the last project we did that was successful and set it up in that way. I start afresh every time. Now this sounds exhausting, but the payoff is huge. In, in this, we have, um, there's a very famous German and sociologist called Harman Rosa. He wrote a book which I found really influential to me. It's called Social Acceleration, his book, Theory of Social Acceleration. We don't need to get into the academic theory, but what he's saying is it's not change that matters anymore. So don't don't be a leader that's that manages change. This is simply not helpful. It's the pace of change. It's the speed at which change takes place. So change has become the new normal. Everything changes all the time. But what we're having to confront now is the pace of change, how, how life is accelerating. You and I, you know, we know we've lived through incredible technological age. I can remember being a professional before mobile phones. That's scary, I know. And before, before we had email and so forth. And just think what we're doing now. And, you know, I was reading yesterday that there's a new chip that you can have implanted in your, just behind your ear, all right? Surgically implanted, which translates so that you can speak in, in any language you like. And I always hear it in my, my English. So I don't need to go to language school anymore. And when I speak, someone else has a chip, they'll hear whatever 
they need to hear. What sort of technology and change will that mean? It'll mean immediately I can communicate beyond language. And that, that requires, in other words, my commitment to continuous learning. And so those, those three are my tips, I think. Mike, thanks so much. I think this tip is very, very important. I can't imagine the day where all of us had a chip at the back of a year and start going to different countries without learning any languages. I think that's going to be very scary and quite powerful. I mean, the tips you share with us, I mean, about humility, understanding what is needed in the market, correct continuous learning, I think these are all very, very important. But Mike, really appreciate your insights and talking to us. And I believe all the listeners who have learned a lot from you today also. And thank you all for listening and I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Take care and stay safe. Thank you for listening to our podcast and we hope you enjoyed today's episode. As always, don't forget to subscribe and rate our channel on Spotify, Apple, Google and all other podcast platforms. For more information about the Chamber, please visit www.britcham.org.sg.